happy holidays, everybody. We just got back from uh, New Year's break and ready for another episode of Beyond Barriers. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, Anthony Beatty with ATOP Security. Anthony is a retired police officer with over 20 years of service and law enforcement, most at a city declining into one of the most violent in the nation. As an officer, he developed his expertise in craft investigation, adding commercial vehicle inspection, enforcement, and investigation to that skill. The student attack at Columbine drove training across his department, evolving their everyday tactics and response. Yet, he did not see these changes in the way schools respond to incidences, evidence in Parkland. Anthony began researching acts of violence and student crisis and spends much of his time studying security as an ACES member and PSP applicant. As the father in a blended family with five children, a Marine veteran, a bartender, two college students, and a high school student, his passion for school safety comes from a personal drive to do the best we can for our children. Welcome to the program, Anthony. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Love the work you guys are doing with uh, countering extremism, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Appreciate it. Just thanks for, so much for joining us, and, and Happy New Year's. Happy New Year to you. It's good to see you in 2022. I know this is going to be a better year. Yeah, likewise. Yes. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, some of the work that, that you're doing with, uh, I guess we'll start, let's start with uh, uh, the peace program. Sure. Uh, you know, after, uh, after 20 years in police work, uh, it was hard not to take the, the feelings, the, the societal angst with police personally. So uh, that led me to, to several conversations uh, with a variety of community leaders. And I happened to connect with Sherry Watts of the Watts Connection, a great individual, uh, fantastic in uh, customer service and public relations. If you're looking for anybody in that realm, uh, you can find her on LinkedIn. Uh, and, and Sherry and I, through several conversations about the differences in our lifestyle, uh, you know, she spent much of her life as a single Black parent. So, you know, obviously, she and I come from different walks of life. And uh, those conversations and, and our ability to work through our differences and build a connection led us to form a program we call PEACE police engagement and community excellence and uh, create content that can be shared with uh, commute, not, not just police officers. Yes, they, they can use some extra professional development and customer service training, but also communities uh, and helping community leaders develop their leadership and customer service and, and work together then uh, to bring peace to communities. Uh, and um, of course, you know, that's where we connected with Beyond Barriers and the work that you guys are doing. Yes. Yeah, we think it's an excellent program. I mean, bringing people together, it, it coincides with the work that we're doing. And we think it's incredibly important. And especially with um, a lot of the what was going on in, in society over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of negative uh, stuff going on uh, where with the media and uh, looking at police departments and, and things like that. So we felt like it was really important to to have you on the program and, and talk a little bit about that and, and uh, you know, the challenges that, that you guys face and, and uh, in law enforcement and also um, in, you know, with your program, if you could uh, 
What do you, what do you have to say about that? Well, you know, there's so much that that police departments really have to look at changing. And and I was not uh, an administrator. Uh, I, I was a beat cop for most of the, the 20 years that I worked. Uh, but I think there are certain attitudes that uh, that have become a standard in the police force that, uh, you know, when I hired in now 25 years ago, uh, those prevalent attitudes had a good reason for being there, it, you know, the, the police dealing with their own and uh, not sharing information about ongoing investigations, uh, it, whether they were police or otherwise. Uh, and, and just as times change, you look at what has happened with social media and, and the opportunity to share information, you know, the, the podcasts weren't, weren't a thing then. Uh, so the changes that have happened mandate that police departments make some changes and begin sharing information differently. And unfortunately, because there's so much information out there that, that isn't processed, right? It's, we, we have no lack of quantity of information. What we lack is quality of information. Uh, and there are so many people out there commenting on how they think police and police operations should be that have never put on a uniform or even done a ride along to see how things are from the officer's side. And what we've seen through studies and, and inviting those people to participate in police training is that giving them that opportunity vastly changes how they think things should go because it's it's walking in somebody's shoes gives you a whole different perspective right exactly absolutely i know you've we've talked about um for all of our listeners uh peace and beyond barriers have done a monthly webinar the last several months uh starting i think it was august or september of last year Mm -hmm. uh which can be found on our youtube channel but discussing these very issues of community and police. What can the community do to improve? What can the police do to improve? And what can they both do to work together to improve relations? And a lot of times it starts with just literally listening to the other side. Like, what do you need from us? What do we need from you? Um, And it's exactly that, so. Yeah, and that's, you know, uh, in peace, we, we talk about perspective mindset, and we've had that conversation several times. And, and that's where, you, you know, we've, we've worked together to create that beyond barriers relational dialogue concept that, that I am, am so proud of and so thankful to have our, our connection that, that we can be part of that. Just breaking down the barriers, okay? recognizing that no matter what we look like or where we come from or or what you think our background is we're all just people and and we need to recognize that we all have a unique story and understanding that story then that perspective mindset we can come out and and approach in a new way that's that's huge that's everything exactly and with that we uh sorry acacia Go ahead. I was going to say, with that uh, relational dialogue, and we're learning so much. I mean, even from 
you know, the people that we've connected with through you, through in the work that we do in, in uh, countering extremism and just bringing sides together. I can say even for even for myself, uh, one of the one of the um, being coming out of the movement, you know, our biggest enemy when I was in the movement was the communists and, and these people. And I dehumanized them in, in the worst, worst manner. And since I've been out and, and doing this kind of work, having conversations and going, you know what, they're human beings too. You know, they have, you know, wants, needs, desires, and, and, and things like that. And while I don't agree with their politics in any way, shape, or form, um, you know, humanizing them. And I think a lot of people don't, um, they just don't humanize one another. And, and that's where the bridge, the gap between the community and the police is so is so much. That's why I, I feel um, it was so important where you shared about people doing the ride-alongs, experiencing something in someone else's shoes or or looking at it through their lens. Um, ha have you seen a, a radical change in, in your work with, with that in, in some uh, instances with people that don't get along with the police departments and then all of a sudden do one of those ride-alongs and have a whole different outlook? I, I actually had uh, one gentleman who uh, was applying, his first ride along with me was as he was applying to be a chaplain for the police department. And he shared with me on his third ride along. Now, now think about that. Uh, obviously he was granted uh, his application and chaplains have a little more access than, uh, than regular citizens would do. But he, he went, he took the time Right? He, this isn't something he got paid to do. He would get up. We started at six o'clock in the morning. He'd be there with me as we started at six and he'd ride most of the day unless something came up through his church. But uh, he, he shared with me on his third ride along that his intention uh, as, as he applied to be a chaplain was to try to change the police department, that, uh, that he started with the mindset that we were wrong and and we needed to change uh, and through his his time with me and, and not just me but me and other officers uh he, he recognized just what we're talking about he he'd broken down some of the barriers right. he spent some time to recognize who we were as individuals and exactly. that opened his mind to how we were doing things and and Gave him a greater perspective, and that's you, you know it's exactly what you're talking about, Jeff. He'd he'd approached, and to his credit, he recognized that he was being challenged through his faith, uh, but he'd approached with really a, a dehumanizing look at police officers, and by spending time with us, humanized us, created it, saw us as individuals, and that in and of itself bridged a lot of the gap. Now. He did the other part of it too. He took the time and had conversations with us and got to know us as people. And you think about that. It, you were you were talking about it with your angst with the folks in the communist movement. If we can stop the hate for a second, stop dehumanizing, and and of course we recognize. And I've learned so much from from our conversations. Right, that you're. Your talk about echo chambers being in social media content that continually reinforces our uh, our own thinking and and dehumanizes the other because we're we're all afraid of losing what we have and what we're trying to get and and right. that creates such angst and hatred uh, that if we can 
if we can just stop that for a minute and try to build that bridge, so much good can happen. Absolutely. Now, listen, America, that, and that, that goes for the Democrats and the Republicans, too, because that's that's really that really needs to be heard right now, you know, in, in society with the polarization that we're facing and and uh, really well stated, uh, Anthony. Uh, thank you so much for that. What about uh, could you share a little bit of, about uh, ATAP with us? Uh, sure. Uh, ATAP, uh, actually, Acacia covered a lot of it in the introduction, but I started as a as a police officer, uh, and I don't care if you call us cops, but I, I know there are some that, that hate that term because it's gotten such a negative context with it, uh, and, and much like the thin blue line flag. So uh, the, the thin blue line, to me, it's not an American flag. It's a symbol that supports police officers. That I think was used because of the hatred be between uh, uh, the some in the BLM movement and white supremacists. White supremacists used it to antagonize BLM and now it's become a symbol of white supremacy. So now every time I see that symbol, I have to question whether that person is a police supporter or a white supremacist. And I don't, I don't like that because I support police no matter what their race, color, or creed is. But uh, <clears throat> so <laughs> I, I say that, so it's a symbol, right? We have to learn to understand each other's symbols. But I started as a cop back in 97. Uh, and then of course, Columbine happened in 98. And that, that devastation, that, that tragedy was so overwhelming to the police officers that were there. And, and who responded by the book for the day? Uh, they saw such a need for a different approach that those officers led much change. And, and we had some great tacticians at our, our police department that helped to drive change through the organization and changed our weapons and tactics and, and daily approach. Uh, and, and so I saw over my 20 year career, very, very much concern and change because of that. And then I retired in 17 and Parkland happened in 18. And I saw almost no difference in the school, not police, police did a great job responding to that. But the school had almost no changes from what happened in Columbine. And that was that was dumbfounding to me after after having to live through so much change myself. So uh, that, that led me to uh, some partnership with uh, folks from law enforcement. And, and then in, in trying to find the best solution for schools, led me into, a, a, well, I guess I've always been a, a bit of a reader and researcher, but that led me to dive into school safety and general security management and, and policy procedures and training. Uh, and as we started to propose solutions that led us into partnership with some fantastic educators and, and even more researchers, uh, uh, a professor down at the Florida Institute of Technology, Jackie Noto, who's a certified behavioral analyst and specializes in violent incidents and training. And so those partnerships then helped us create a unique organization that looks specifically at schools and how to prevent uh, critical incidents and, and students from hitting that crisis mode. Because one of the things our research showed was that 
this, the same behavior patterns show that what they really show is a student in crisis, but the same behavior patterns that lead to a student committing an act of violence lead to our kids trying to commit suicide or running away or falling into addictive behaviors, whether they're sexual or, or drug abuse. So, you know, if we can, if we can help schools identify and address those issues while they're still small, we can prevent critical incidents of all kinds. So that's obviously I get a little passionate. Sorry if I got a little carried away there. But. No, you're good. <laughs> Great. No, go ahead, Acacia. No, I was just going to say that brings me into the next thing that um, ATEP actually uh, has a program that's called ATEP Hall Monitor. And if you would, I just want to, if you can give our audience a brief idea of what exactly that does, um, because I know there are a lot of uh, parents with kids that listen and a lot of times as a parent myself and as having the shooting in Oxford happened not too long ago. Like that's very near, you know, it's in the same state and only probably about, you know, not even an hour from where we're at. And it's like, this could happen at my school. This could happen at my kid's school. Like that's when it hits it really close to home and trying to see like, okay, so things can be prevented. How can they pre be prevented? Obviously things are gonna happen. That's kind of a part of life. But um, I think it would be good to be able to hear about some of the solutions that are being brought up um, for our audience to hear about, if you would. Sure, yeah. <clears throat> you look at, and there's an unfortunate pattern with school safety where uh, one of these incidents will happen. And I've seen numbers that, that minimalize the incident and say, uh, your chance of losing a kid in a school attack is one-tenth of winning the lottery, right? They're, they're one in billions. The problem with those analyses are that they don't address the real issue because you look at what happened in Oxford here, and <clears throat> yes, the chance of, of your kid dying in that attack is small, but that incident didn't just affect the families who had a kid die. That incident affects the whole community. And when you look at things that way, our chances every year of, of having a school attack that affects us are 2%. They won't approve drugs with 2% chance of negative effects, right? So when, when we look at things that way, 2% every year is a huge risk. So one of the big problems with school safety is that an incident like this will happen and now everybody's passionate about it right. until something else happens and then they move on, right? So what we've tried to do is create programs that will help schools across the board stabilize their safety programs. We're, we're in a train the trainer kind of format where we can help schools look at what we call comprehensive school safety. And that's not our term, that's become a national term. But comprehensive school safety planning so that we can look at all aspects from physical building security to emergency operations plans to here, here's a big one, not just drilling, but training students and staff to appropriately react in different situations provide that training and, and teach a school staff to take over all of that for themselves uh, so that they can maintain it long-term. Those are 
that that's really what's key. Uh, now you mentioned Hall Monitor. Hall Monitor is a new program, uh, so we don't have. Uh, I would in a couple of years we'll be talking about the data that comes out of this and and the proven effectiveness I think of it. Uh, but uh, it, right now it is highly theoretical. We've used our our researchers, uh, folks like. Jackie Noto and, and our superintendents on staff to bring into reality, and, and you can look at atapholmonitor.com. It's got its own website uh, for the research backing in that. But Home Monitor is a behavior pattern tracking data management system. So what it does is really crowdsource what's going on in a student's life. Uh, so after every critical incident, regardless of the nature, if you talk to the folks around that student, what we hear is, well, I heard this one thing, but I didn't think that meant they were headed here, right? And, and that's very true. When we hear those one things, it, it probably isn't, probably isn't, it can be, but probably isn't a, a direct indicator. But when we can compile all of those into a big picture of what's going on in a student's life, now we can really see this is somebody heading for crisis. So the other side of that is we don't want to be all negative. We know from our, our educators and our researchers that positive behavior recognition can really help develop what they call the whole child, right? And we know as adults, everybody likes to hear praise. Right? It doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing. We love to hear good things about ourselves. So we've built in things like a positive behavior recognition component to the hall monitor because we want people to focus on the positives. And we recognize, again, our research shows that the more we're recognizing the positives, the easier it is to get folks to contribute when there's that questionable negative because nobody wants to be the snitch. But now we know if if there's a big picture that's gonna paint who the whole person is, that this one little thing that we add can just provide them some assistance, it's much easier to, to add in that component. So that's where Hall Monitor, that's, we've got that program, it's launched. Uh, we're looking for schools to partner with us uh, in, in using that. And it's actually included in our, our safety packages, so. Awesome. It's good to hear. And yes, uh, we will definitely include uh, the website in our description also for people to take a look at. Um, that kind of brings us into our next thing as far as like Beyond Barriers has a student's anti-violence engagement, um, which we've actually paired up with ATAP to go into schools to help with this prevention, to help teach the Beyond Barriers relational dialogue to the teachers um, because the teachers, sadly enough, really aren't. They're taught to teach your kids math and science, and they're not taught to teach your kids the daily things that people should know as far as, okay, how do we get along with one another? Um, if a, And the only time that that seems to come up is if there's a problem, then we need to adjust, address it. But really, and I think, you know, Jeff would agree with me on this too, that if we start out when they're young, teaching them about diversity, but how diversity can be a strength, how just because you're different than me doesn't mean that you're bad, doesn't mean that I get to put the blame on you, then 
we will have a lot less issue as they get older and they get to be adults. And then we don't, there won't be as much of a need for the de-radicalization and all of that because they've been taught from a very young age how to have dialogue with one another and sit down and talk to one another. And yes, I was just going to say, that's why we think your programs are so great and that we're so honored and happy to be teaming up with you because it's going to save lives. It, it's simply, it's, it's going to save lives and it's, and it's going to help teach people these social skills, young people, the social skills that they need moving forward um, to understand one another, to not judge one another. And, and, um, and it's just, uh, it's so all encompassing. That's why we think it's so important, but uh, yeah, please your thoughts. No, I, I was going to say the same thing. That's why I, I love the Beyond Barriers work and, and the programs that, that you guys have and, and the work that you've done and, and that we're able to partner in that regard because, you know, it's very much what what we see as police officers. And, and if you think about it, nobody calls the cops when things are going well. It's never, uh, hey, we're, we're having a family barbecue. Why don't you come out and grab something to eat? It's only when the barbecue goes bad and, and somebody starts carving up somebody else that, that the cops are, are called out. And, and that's, that's a Band-Aid, right? That's, it, it's a after incident cleanup. And that's why there are so many folks, and I appreciate that, that wanna support police with adding mental health services and community resources and, and Department of Human Services. Now we can't take the cops away to do that, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm going to stand on that ground. But those services need to be added to help police. But if you think about it, at that point, we're already dealing with adults. And if we can help fix those issues as people are kids, it goes right back to what I was saying earlier. If we can catch those small things earlier, then we can eliminate the big changes later on. So why not do the same thing here? You know, if we, as we worked with peace and, and beyond barriers in this, beyond barriers relational dialogue, I couldn't help but think, what if we could teach the same thing, not to just to adults leading the community, but to kids, so that now it doesn't matter how they grow up or where they, where they go, they've already got that fundamental of, I'm different from you, you're different from me, how can we work together and use our differences as strengths? I, I think that's huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. <clears throat> and the preventative aspect as well, you know, preventing these things from happening in the future is, is uh, you know, as Acacia mentioned as well, you know, I mean, the teachers are teaching math, they're teaching history, they're teaching, right. you know, these things, and those are important things to learn, but the social skills and the understanding one another and the different cultures, and I know I've said it before as well, like I, you know, when uh, I was in school, they had a international day, one day of the year where, you know, they you know, taught, you know, basically it was just about bringing in food of the different cultures. Everybody enjoyed it. It was fun, but it was one day and you really didn't learn much. You just got to sample different, different things. Um, you know, having something like that, where people can learn about one another, having those social skills and those preventative skills growing up and starting in the schools from a young age is going to make uh, for a better society in the future, in my opinion. And that's why I think these programs are so important and, and, uh, um, you know, government officials do listen to this program. Uh, we do have people from the school systems and, and things like that that listen to these programs as well. So um, everybody think about getting on these programs. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really, really important and it can save lives and it can, uh, uh, you know, set, set up the standard for, for a more healthy, uh, better society in the future. 
I think. Yeah, and that's I, I love that Beyond, Beyond Barriers is nonprofit. You, you're not doing this for money. Uh, you know, obviously there's some funding that needs to be uh, contemplated there to, to cover travel and time expenses, right? We, you're just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean they give you a place to live and and food for you and your families. Right. But, so you know that's we need government assistance there. We need some funding to go into these programs, and. Sure, you guys have had the same experience as we research the, the programs and, and the research grants that are given. A lot of those are given to, to higher ed folks who are already in a university setting. And that's great. I'm not saying stop that, but some of that needs to come out to grassroots efforts like Beyond Barriers so that we can show the effectiveness of Beyond Barriers Relational Dialogue Program in a restorative practice. I know we had a great conversation with a gal in Southeast Michigan, who's all about uh, giving us an opportunity to try that in school, which is fantastic. But we can only do so many of those trials without having some kind of some kind of income come in. So no matter where you're at, reach out to a local representative and, and advocate for some funding in this area. Absolutely, you bring up a very good point because it's like, we would love to be able to bring things to everybody for free because this is something everybody needs. Yes. But you're right that and there is government funding that has been set aside for things. But majority of the time you see the funding and the grants, but you don't see the fruits of it. You don't see it touching the communities and the people within the communities. You see it touching who knows what sometimes. And I'm not saying that these other programs aren't doing anything. I'm just saying a lot of times you don't see it at a community level. You don't see it at that grassroots level within the schools, within the local schools. And uh, yes, we had a conversation with uh, restorative justice uh, with one of the school districts. Absolutely amazing work what they're doing and absolutely amazing that, you know, we, we do need to look at it as a whole. You've mentioned it several times, Anthony, as far as uh, taking everything and looking at it as the whole child, not just one incident, because many times it's accumulative of good and bad, and then it builds up to an incident. And so taking a look at everything is what we need to do. And I think a lot of times what we've been doing is only taking a look at one incident here, one incident there, not what patterns create those. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's it's kind of a corner that our ed educators are backed into by the system. There's so many mandates on what schools and, and our educators have to do that there's so little time for them to address the big picture, much like the police work. You know, I, I've said most of my career, you, you look at when the state has to cut money, the first two things are go are police and education. And what do we need most in society? We need more education so that we can have fewer police officers. And and <laughs> it, so when you when you cut both at the same time, it compounds the problem because now we're going to have a higher crime rate now, and we're going to have more struggling people in in a couple of decades as those kids become adults. So uh, it, it's a compounding issue. Now somebody has to pay for it. I, I recognize that it's difficult to step forward and say, hey, I want to pay more money for that. But when we look at the big picture, 
that this is, we want to prevent things, we want to change society and have a better world for those kids to live in, we've got to do the work now. Yeah, I think a lot of times we've been uh, so concentrated on countering and uh, the countering the violent extremism, countering these things that we forget about the prevention and the preventative measures that we can take. I'm not saying that we shouldn't counter because you absolutely have to because the problem's there. So you got to find a way to deal with it and to deal with it effectively. But we also need to look at what can we do to prevent these situations from happening in the first place. And um, I said it before and I'll say it again. I'm a huge advocate of prevention and starting with our youth because that's youth become adults. You know, adults weren't just born yesterday and suddenly here they are. They're adults with all these problems. They start out as kids. And if we don't teach our kids how to get along, how to effectively uh, resolve conflicts and uh, effectively, um, yeah, conflict resolution is a big one because a lot of times we are so trigger happy that, you know, shoot now, ask questions later, and we've just become so adjusted to it. I mean, our attention span nowadays is 30 seconds to a minute. How are you going to solve a problem in 30 seconds to a minute? Yeah. It doesn't happen. So it's it's teaching our kids that you need to slow down for a minute, take a minute, and actually think before you act. Yeah. And and much like policing, you know, it's it's we have to look at the big picture. And this is a 20 to 30 year solution because we have to address the problems that we're having now. We have to address the adults. We have to use organizations like Beyond Barriers to counter the extremism in the people who are already radicalized. You know, police work has to deal with the folks who are already criminals. And it's gonna be a couple of decades dealing with those folks. We also have to go back and address the youth and, and teach Beyond Barriers relational dialogue, those conflict resolution recognition, uh, perspective mindset strategies to our youth so that they can grow up and be peaceful adults who, who aren't creating extremist uh, ideologies. And, and that's, you know, to do all of that, we have to do all of that for 20 to 30 years before we can have a real change. And think now, think about your politicians. How long is somebody in local office? How long is somebody in a higher office? You know, our president's only there for eight years. We have to, like Jeff said, doesn't matter if we're Republican or Democrat. I, I heard somebody the other day talking about how in 94, you know, it, but pre-94, when you got elected, you took your family and you moved them to Washington, D.C. And what that did for us was then it didn't matter <clears throat> which party you came from. Now, all of a sudden, you're living and working in the same community and your kids are playing soccer together and they're going to dance recitals together. And so you've got to work together as a community. Now, you leave your family where they're at and you come and visit Washington, D.C. Well, what does that do? It allows us to dehumanize the other side and radicalize ourselves so that now we don't we think we don't have to work together well that that obviously given the state of affairs of our country it doesn't work very well so right that's a really good point I, I never i never thought about that before thanks for sharing that that's that, that's a really good point 
it's from your experience as a police officer, uh, I, I can imagine, I can only imagine some of the uh, most extreme stories and, and experiences, I should say, that, you, that you've had in, in your life. Do you have one that's, um, actually, I'm going to ask two questions, but uh, probably one of the most, you know, one, uh, one of the most troubling uh, cases that you had as a police officer, and then two, uh, something where a situation could have been very bad, but you were able to use your conflict resolution skills to set somebody in a, in a good direction. Two tough uh, ones, sorry, Anthony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, those aren't ones you can throw out without, uh, without some preparation. Um, <laughs> because there's a lot of it that, that's not, uh, shouldn't be shared with the public. Right. Um, well, that yeah. <laughs> Avoid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I think uh, I think the toughest cases uh, for for me as a parent were were the ones that involved kids, uh, and whether it was uh, sexual molestation or physical abuse, uh, mental trauma. Those those cases stick with you, and I, I have several going through my head right now that. Uh, that I just don't want to burden the public with. I think the worst day, uh, and not just for me, it was for everybody that worked with us that day. Uh, <clears throat> three weeks before Christmas, we uh, our first call uh, before seven o'clock was a child death. Uh, and I mean, those are always tough. This one happened to be... Uh, <clears throat> A 10-year-old boy who'd been sick for a long time uh, and, and was in-home respite care. His family knew it wasn't long, uh, but they had their presents around the Christmas tree for him. And so right at the beginning of the shift, we were all dealing with the fact that he was never going to open those presents. Uh, and anytime in, uh, our agency policy was always to go investigate uh, any death outside of a hospital. And so uh, three weeks before Christmas, we were short-staffed. Most of us were involved in that investigation in, in some form or another. Uh, I was at the hospital uh, because he was transported to even though he'd already passed. I was at the hospital dealing with family and uh, waiting to take his body to the morgue when uh, the call came in that we had a, a SIDS case. Uh, an infant death, same day. And uh, dispatch just picks a number out of a hat and signs an officer. And, and the dispatcher didn't know that the officer they sent had lost a son to SIDS himself. Um, and so, it, <clears throat> you know, he, he chose not to respond to that call and, and ask for somebody else to take it on the radio. But, uh, you know, then the, the that our shift is still dealt with now the second child death of the day again three weeks before Christmas and and that was a day that uh, uh, it broke me it it changed my life forever and and uh, thankfully I dealt with an older administrator at the hospital who was in tears as the baby was because the baby both kids were sent to the same hospital uh, I mean, it was a matter of what we could handle 
and so one of us could be there and, and deal with both cases at the same time. But uh, <clears throat> a strain on on both research and the fire department, you know, same same crews handling both cases. And so it was a strain on all of the first responders in that. Uh, and and I turned around and this administrator is crying and I'm like, you know, it's okay. We'll, we'll pull it together before the family gets here. And she just looked at me and she said, I want the family to know how much this hurts. Mm. We don't need to cover up our emotions. And that wasn't the training that I had experienced as a police officer. So uh, worst day, I, I, I go back to that with another many incidents that I won't share that, that dealt with that. But uh, let me let me preface let me preface that not to not to cut you off. But the reason I asked that, Anthony, and it wasn't to uh, for, to try to. Uh, have you relived the trauma, but it is to show the public and to have the public understand and humanize police officers and the important work that they do and the important struggles that they that they go through. And especially in this uh, current environment where people a lot of times are dehumanizing police and mm -hmm. and uh, saying horrible things and thinking horrible things. Those are the kind of things that they need to think about before they dehumanize a police officer, before you throw something at a police officer at a protest or, or something like that, or before you get nasty with a police officer that pulls you over. These are the type of things that police officers deal with on a daily basis and and how that affects them. So I, I, I it's incredibly, um, I'm incredibly thankful that you shared that with us and with, with the public, because I think it's, it's something that they need to hear and understand. And, and uh, it all goes back to that understanding one another and, and that relational dialogue that we talked about. And um, Yeah, it's, it's really huge. And that's why I, I always advocate doing ride-alongs. You know, if, if you're going to criticize your local police department, take the time to get to know them. Take the time to see what they see. I can't tell you how many times I heard from people of, of all races, well, you're just stopping me because of my race. Right? You're trying to justify your, your quota. When you sit in a police car, most of the time, you don't get to see who the driver is in, until you get closer. You know, that's, so I, I didn't know what your race was until I walked up on you. And, and uh, from the squad car, from that ride-along position, you can see that for yourself. From the squad car, from riding along, you can see how uh, police are sent there. They're the first ones in there. Plenty of times the fire department, at least in our jurisdiction, won't respond until police have secured the scene, regardless of the nature of, of the call. Uh, you know, whether it's it's bullets flying and fire, firemen call us blue canaries. Canaries because the old miners used to carry a canary in a cage down into the mine. And if the canary keeled over, they knew things were getting bad and it was time to get out. And fire department uses us the same way a lot of the time. Go in there and tell us if it's okay. At the point when you fall over, I know I need to put on my protective gear. So, uh, <laughs> some of those rivalries, if you're in New York, I apologize, NYPD, FDNY, you guys need to work together better because you're on the same front line. But uh, <laughs> So the, the, the other question you asked is if I were able to use... Uh, negotiation skill to resolve incidents and I can't tell you the number of times that 
not just myself, but I saw officers de-escalating situations. Uh, now, I, I have seen and worked with a guy who we, we tried to make arrests before he got there because we knew he was going to crank things up. And, and for some of you, this may be hard to believe. I didn't want to fight with everybody. Uh, I, I didn't, I, I, <laughs> I made arrests because they were necessary to keep peace, not because I enjoyed strong arming people. Um, unfortunately, Jeff, I, I can also think of several situations where de-escalation didn't matter. And we were, we were going to be going hands-on no matter who was there or how they were talking. Uh, I was asked in, in my hiring interview, if if you have a partner with you, do you want somebody who can really negotiate or do you want a big, ugly, mean guy? My answer was straightforward. I, I think I can talk to pretty much everybody. But when things go bad, talking is over and done with. Give me the big, ugly, mean guy every time. Because he can hang back until I, things things my talking fails. And then I'll let him take over, right? So I, I say that jokingly, but people need to realize, uh, you know, I, I understand there's a huge push right now, a huge advocate for more mental health services, more social services, more social workers. And people say, uh, we can have social workers respond to so many of these police calls. Okay. Then do we really need to call them police calls to begin with? Why do people call the police department? 911. Everybody knows it. It's easy to remember. It's easy to dial. So people call the police department for everything from barking dogs to cars parked on the sidewalk to, you know, hey, my neighbor's waving a gun around. It all goes to the police department. They're the central fault. And it, then it's easy to take the angst of everything going on in the government out on the police department. Why? They're the face of all the government interactions that we see. They're the first response to everything that we have to deal with. And again, so much of it is bad. You call a fireman to get your cat out of the tree and you love him for it. The firemen take your aunt to the hospital when she was in that fender bender that the mean cop wrote her a ticket for. <laughs> so it, it's easy to throw anxiety against the police department. And it's easy to standardize. We all wear the same kind of uniform. Right? I love that Daryl said we need to stop sending out detectives and internal affairs in plain clothes and suits and ties and say that these are the guys that you can talk to, but you can't talk to the guys in uniform. But we've got to change all of that as society. Dr. Alfred Titus wrote a, wrote a book I just got for my, uh, my son's girlfriend's daughter. And I can't remember the name of it, but look, at, look him up on Amazon, Dr. Alfred Titus. And, and he talks about helping kids realize that police are there for good, that they're our friends. That's it's a huge need for society to deal with that. And then we have to recognize that they're cops. And I appreciate if you're in uniform or wore a uniform, walked a beat or drove a car, I, I appreciate you. There are so many like Jeff and Acacia that appreciate you and thank you for the job you're doing. Absolutely. I'm thankful every day that you guys are out there taking care of us and there are plenty of us that recognize how much we owe you. So don't give up. And, and on that note, I know we, we just did a, a pod that we just did a 
piece podcast uh, that talked about the doldrums of the winter. Uh, I, I saw another police suicide just this week. If you're struggling, uh, you saw, I, I, I tried to hold it in as much as I could, but you saw some of the, the angst that I experienced on that call that day. Talk to somebody. Uh, I, I know Pastor Glory Bell Lilly uh, out in California. You can look her up on LinkedIn. I know she'd be happy to talk to you. There are plenty of folks, uh, chaplains or not, that are willing to talk to you. Uh, we used to have debriefs after shift where we would get together and talk and resolve. Let some of that go. There are plenty of people who will listen and talk to someone. Sorry. Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> No, thanks for letting great. me go off on that tangent. No, thanks for sharing all that. It was great. It's very needed. Very, very needed. A lot of times, you know, we talk about dehumanization and we forget that, you know, it's, you can dehumanize in your own mind without actually realizing that you're doing it. And a lot of it's about perspective on how you look at someone or something. And a lot of times you, we tend to look at a certain position and forget that those are people that are filling those positions. And those are people that have struggles just like you and me. So getting back to that and getting back to basics and, you know, police officers deal with a lot more trauma than I know they would like to admit. And I know that the public would like to realize that they really do. And we should be thankful and remember that they deal with that so we don't have to. Yeah, we, we shared that on our on our uh, last panel discussion. It, you know, regardless of the numbers, uh, the the average person will deal with one and a half to two critical incidents in their lifetime. And if you think about you know how much we go through, and what we're talking about is having your home broken into, uh, uh, losing a loved one in a tragedy. That's one and a half to two incidents through your lifetime. And depending on the numbers that you look at, police experience 200 to 800 over their 20 year career. Wow. So at the very least 100 times more critical incidents. And so that, that stress changes you. And that's, uh, you know, I invite people to, to look up that YouTube recording and watch mental health experts, not just cops, don't just hear it from our perspective, but look at mental health experts and what they say cops are dealing with out there. So uh, that's huge. I, I think if you look at suicide numbers, uh, Chief Gang in that podcast mentioned how many folks we've lost to suicide. I think it was 137 last year alone. Uh, 137 suicides. You think, well, that's not that many cops across our nation. Folks, there aren't that many cops across our nation, and those numbers have increased drastically over the last few years. I think a lot of that is due to society's dehumanizing of police officers that leads to cops dehumanizing themselves. Now, this isn't my area. I'm not talking as an expert. I'm just talking from opinion. But it, you think of where somebody's at when they commit suicide, when they take their own life. They're not thinking of themselves as a person. They're thinking the world will be better off without them as an individual. And what we're doing to cops is leading to a lot of that. That's that's not okay. Sorry, we kind of brought things, brought things down there. It's been a, a really deep and sorrowful conversation. That's, uh, I don't think that was my intent as I 
as I jumped on today. We're we're sorry to to bring up some of those things too. And I just I, I feel like if the public better understands the the human aspect of what police officers go through, maybe that that's one way to initiate that change. And and I do agree with you. Uh, dialogue doesn't always work. And we, we know that in the work that we do as well, it doesn't always work. And you're going to deal with those people that, uh, you know, will go off uh, no matter what, and are not gonna, you're not going to get through to them. Um, obviously, <clears throat> it's ideal to have the dialogue and, and, and do things that way. Um, but if that doesn't work, when that doesn't, when dialogue fails, then it goes on to the next thing. So, I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, an important thing as well. So, but no, I really appreciate you sharing all that with, with us, but uh, on a lighter note, could you share an inspiring story? One of the more inspiring stories with us as, as uh, uh, from your career, um, lighten, lighten the environment. I, I like to think of the young people that that make the transitions to a good life. And I had uh, I had a, a few years into my career, and I would have considered myself a veteran at the time. But uh, we dealt with a family that uh, <clears throat> that the government kind of got used as uh, in a, in a family dispute, and we ended up uh, needing to remove some kids. From a situation uh, and regardless of the reasons behind it we were we were ordered by a judge and so we had to do what we had to do and uh, I ended up arresting a young man from that house years later as I was a school resource officer uh, <laughs> I, I had no idea I was called to deal with a, a girl in middle school and she happened to be from that same household. Mm. Uh, so I had never dealt with the mom in that situation, uh, but she knew me and she knew my face from the police reports and, and court case that followed and all of that. I was, uh, I was dealing with her daughter and, uh, and she liked the way that I deal with, dealt with things. And she, she called me back later that week and said, I, I, I need to apologize. I, I couldn't even interact with you that day because of the trauma of that incident and recognizing who you were as soon as I saw your name. Uh, she said, but I'm so thankful. She said, I've been wanting to thank you for years for the way that you dealt with my son. And now I can thank you for the way that you dealt with my daughter and, and just wanted to give you recognition and appreciation for that. So uh, it, you know, despite the tragedy that that family had been through, uh, they were supportive and, and not just of the police department, but their kids were, were doing well. In fact, I saw him a couple of years after that, the young man I arrested, and, and he was a military officer. So, wow. uh, it, you know, it, that's those incidents where you can interact and provide that. Again, I had to arrest somebody. I didn't have a choice in that. And recognize folks cops don't always have that choice we we have to follow the law or we get in trouble and can end up being put in jail and i'm, I'm not giving up my my job or or family life uh to to give you out of out of yours so uh but 
through all of that, we had we had a great outcome, and that's I think one of many stories that that cops experience. It's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So I I want to I want to hit uh, folks. If folks are looking for it, you won't find uh, just peace. You have to Google search a bit to find peace. It's P E A C E with all the periods. Our website is communityandpolice.com. Of course, you can reach out to the Beyond Barriers folks uh, to talk about our programs and what we can do. Uh, regardless, you know, yes, we have a program. Yes, we would charge money for it. We have to pay experts to come in and, and provide those uh, uh, organizational structural sessions. Uh, you know, the Watts Connection is a great opportunity for folks to do that, regardless of type of organization. Uh, but you know, you can do the little things on your own. You can, you can take Absolutely. the concept of beyond barriers relational dialogue and begin those conversations like that that pastor did with me as he became a chaplain. Now, if you're worried about your community as a whole, of course we're happy to come provide that instructional basis for you. And sometimes that's what folks need to see that a, an outside party is coming in to help negotiate the peace. Absolutely. And thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I think uh, give people a lot to think about, but also, like you said, you know, you guys, the listening audience can do this, start it on your own. It starts very simple with the conversation, having these conversations that aren't exactly the most comfortable, but are needed, you know, and that's, that's where it starts. A lot of times we shy away from things that make us uncomfortable. Well, sometimes it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's needed. So thank you again for joining us today and look forward to working with you some more. No, thank you guys for having me. Keep up the great work at Beyond Barriers. Stay graceful. Thank you, thank you Anthony.